You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your source for the national security laws and powers that are being invoked, ignored, or suspended during the efforts to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Yvette. And I'm Elisa. To our quarantined listeners, we're glad you're here. This is the first in our two-part series on the role and importance of inspectors general to the intelligence community. And we're doing this series to discuss the legal issues involved in two recent developments. One, the termination of the inspector general for the office of the director of national intelligence. And two, the inspector general's report on the FISA on Carter Page. While COVID spread, the president fired a grand total of six inspectors general. One of them was Michael Atkinson, the Inspector General for the Office of Director of National Intelligence, or ODNI. Atkinson was the person who received the complaint that the president had abused his authority by urging the president of the Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden, former Vice President Biden's son, in what appeared to many to be a purely political move unrelated to the president's Article II national security or diplomacy powers. And I'm Nicole. Outrage ensued and questions arose when the Ukraine story became public. Many thought the president's move was beneath the level of acceptable behavior for the POTUS and possibly illegal. Others thought nothing restricted the behavior of the president and that the hysteria had taken hold of those who were already Trump skeptics. The complaint that the recording and transcript of the call had been improperly uploaded to a compartmentalized classified database to conceal the nature of the call landed with Atkinson in his capacity as the IG for ODNI. When the president fired Atkinson recently, was he acting illegally? No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, we'll discuss the history, authority, and practical role of inspectors general to the intelligence community. And are there really any political restrictions on the selection of IGs or just partisan political restrictions? To ground you in the law, our guest today has served as the inspector general or IG for the National Security Agency or NSA. It's gonna be alphabet soup today, so buckle up. (laughs) He was formerly the IG and later senior counsel at the NSA. And in between, he ran counter-intel policy for the DNI. He was formerly a federal prosecutor. He spent many years in private practice. And today, he's a senior research fellow at MIT Center for International Studies. Please welcome Joel Brenner to National Security Law today. Delighted to be here. Joel, let's get right down to the origins of Inspectors General. We imagine they've been institutionalized as part of the democracy since the framers' time. Is that true? No, it's not even remotely true. Um, We do have, since colonial times in the Continental Army, General Washington um, used uh, uh, an inspector general in the army. That was Baron von Steuben, a Prussian officer who wasn't really a baron, uh, but who was a, a major general himself. Um, and that practice was adopted by our military services early on in, in the history of the Republic. But there were no inspectors general in the civilian parts of the government until 1978. And that development, the IG Act of 78, was one of a, a, a variety of congressional initiatives in response to what were widely perceived as the abuses, um, not only of the Nixon administration, but of the, of the um, uh, executive power since the, since the Second World War in terms of uh, spying on American citizens and, and, and that sort of thing. 
Um, so it was only since 78 that we're, we've really had IGs in the civilian part of the government. And um, people would be interested to know that that reform um, didn't include the intelligence agencies. CIA didn't get an IG until a separate act in 1989, uh, 11 years later. Um, and that act is somewhat different than the other act for reasons people I think could understand. Um, and the ODNI itself, of course, the ODNI is uh, the Director of National Intelligence is a creation of an act in 2004, um, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. But even that act didn't put an IG in the, um, uh, in the Office of the, of the Director of National Intelligence. There were still IGs in all the um, intelligence agencies, but it wasn't until the 2010 Intelligence Authorization Act that we got an inspector general for the whole intelligence community. Um, and NSA is a, yet again a special case. Uh, people will be surprised to know that NSA isn't even a statutory creation. Uh, President Truman created the National Security Agency in October 1952 by executive order. And there's still no statute that creates it, although there are many statutes that refer to NSA and assume that it, it exists. The um, agency had an IG by internal regulation starting in 1961. Um, but you know, there's a real problem with having internal um, IGs because that person then gets recycled back into the workforce and has to um, deal with uh, pe people who he or she has been um, um, trying to oversee. And that, you know, arguably um, results in some pulled punches. Um, it wasn't until 96 that the director of NSA, at the time that was Lieutenant General Minahan, uh, went outside um, for uh, an outsider to come in, as, as General Hayden brought me in as an outsider. Uh, but that, um, that, that development, didn't, that IG's office didn't become statutory um, uh, until 2010, and then didn't become a presidential appointment um, until the 2014 Intelligence Authorization Act. So that's um, the IG uh, NSA is a peculiar case. You know, it's a it's a defense agency, not a separate. It's part of the Department of Defense. And when I was the IG there, the General Counsel at DoD was really allergic to the idea of having a, a separate statutory IG within the Defense Department because he thought that was derogating from big DOD's power. So that it, it took some time after that uh, for that to happen. And 2014 is when it came about. All right, so this is, a, this is a far newer concept than I think the general public and even most lawyers would realize, but do inspector generals for the intelligence community serve Congress, um, since they are external, as you would say, or appointed, um, or do they serve the American people or the executive branch? And importantly, can Congress intercede as a matter of law in the firing of an AG, of an IG? Well, you know, that's what um, trial lawyers call a compound question. Um, so let me, let me take them one at a time. <laughs> Uh, those rules, those rules don't apply. Yeah, I know. I've, Mr. Brenner. 
it's interesting that, to look at the differences between the original bill to create to create the um, IG Act in 1977 and what really eventually happened. Because what eventually happened is what had to happen. The, the IGs created by that act are within the executive branch of the government. Um, but it wasn't the case when exactly, it wasn't clear when the original bill um, was put forward. And the Office of Legal Counsel which um, lawyers in the audience will know is the, the sort of the lawyers for the Justice Department. These are the, the, this is the office that really tells us what the executive branch believes the law is. And, and so that bill went to OLC for its views. And OLC wrote a, an available um, uh, opinion about it, saying this is neither fish nor fowl because it reports to the aid to the Congress as well as to the agency head, and OLC saw that as a separation of powers issue, and 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 that was correct. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. That was constitutionally infirm as originally um, drafted. The the IGs under that bill would report directly to Congress, bypassing the head of an agency, which I, 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 the uh, OLC also objected to, I, I believe correctly. Um, and also said, well, the, the IG had a re continuous reporting obligation that violated Article 2, but I think that was a, uh, a throwaway uh, objection because as it, OLC pointed out, there are other statutes that were quite similar, and, and they sort of dropped that. Um, OLC complained also that the reporting obligations of the IGs did not specifically exempt matters of executive privilege. But, uh, and, and that, you know, one raises executive privilege if you want to raise it. Um, exempting it in advance is, it would have been odd. It's like, you know, exempting other kinds of privileged information in advance. You, you raise the privilege if you want to raise it. That, that also has kind of gone by the wayside. Um, removal in the original bill, which is what in constitutional law you call firing somebody, uh, was conditioned on notifying Congress of reasons and OLC didn't like that either. That also went by the wayside. So OLC really said they, they came up with three potential cures, which they called cures. One of them was that the IG had to be responsible to the agency head, and that is in fact what the final bill and now the act actually says. Secondly, OLC uh, wanted reports to Congress to come through the agency head so that uh, a pres another presidential appoint appointee, the agency head, would have an opportunity to uh, assert an executive privilege, for example, before deciding whether um, to pass the report on to the, to the Congress. That was also done. Uh, and that is why, for instance, uh, in the Ukraine whistleblower matter, um, Mr. Atkinson, the IG at the time, passed his report through the director, McGuire, rather than directly to the Congress. Uh, OLC's third objection was that there was this business about a flagrant abuse and that the IG was supposed to report a flagrant, flagrant abuses to Congress within 70 days, and OLC didn't like that. Um, and that, as we know, um, was not changed in the original bill, in the act. 
because we still have this urgent concern on business. But the, the answer to your question, one of your questions is, this official is lodged in the executive branch of the government and it could not be otherwise. You could not have a congressional agent within the executive branch without violating the separation of powers doctrine, which is really bedrock in, in the American constitution. But um, even with these changes that I mentioned, uh, I gotta tell you, the, the view in every White House, although they don't all say so, is that the IG is a congressional stool pigeon. And it's no wonder that um, the executive branch doesn't really like them. Presidents don't really like them. But, and the way that Congress, I wanna say, leashes the IG, but um, creates a certain amount of power over the IG is two ways. One is when confirmation time comes around, the senators will say, uh, well, um, Ms. Yvette, if we are going to confirm you for this august position that you've been nominated for, will you represent to us, and you're now under oath, will you represent to us that you will respond to the inquiries that we make of you? And uh, Ms. Yvette, you're gonna say yes, because you want the job and everybody says yes to the question. The also, of course. The, the, the public doesn't really understand how important the Intel Authorization Acts are. They're like, like the Defense Authorization Acts. And the Congress, when it, when it passes these, when the committees, uh, before it gets to the full Congress, pass these acts, they don't say, okay, here's the money. They put all kinds of conditions around the money. Sometimes they fence it, saying that you can have this money, but only if you spend it in exactly this way. Or they say, um, as a condition of getting this money, to give us the following reports. And all the, although the Intel Authorization Acts aren't codified in USC because they're not part of the ongoing uh, law that we're living with, they don't, have a, they don't have a shelf life. And something that is required to happen, like I gave an example earlier of the 2014 Intel Authorization Act, which created the IG in ODNI. I mean, is it, they are effective forever, even though they're one-year authorizations. And so I, when I was the IG, I, I think about, I don't know, was half or what of my staff's time was taken up filing annually required congressional reports. And a few of them were actually useful. Some of them were idiotic and totally useless. And then some of them you didn't know, but we, we spent so much time doing this stuff that and we, we often scratched our heads and said, does anybody really read this, even the staff up there? And the answer is, we don't know, we don't know. Um, it would be a smart thing for Congress to uh, occasionally do something that nobody bothers to do, which is to look at these obligations in the aggregate and determine which of might actually be useful um, because it takes a lot of time and a lot of budget. But that's how, the Congress takes an executive official and imposes reporting requirements to that executive official and thereby gets around this um, separation of powers problem, which of course is why presidents don't like these uh, officials. And uh, I guess we could come to the current president's view of, of these things. Um, you know, the, the executive argument about its 
exclusivity in managing the executive branch comes from what's called the take care clause in Article 2, Section 3. It's the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That is a, an obligation and a duty, as well as a, an authorization for the president of the United States to have the exclusive power over the uh, running of the executive um, branch of the government. It was meant to be so. President Trump has, I think, um, indicated that that's a reason why we shouldn't have these IGs. That's, that's not right, because it, the president can, of course, have inferior officers doing his bidding. Um, and so the fact that the president has the take care obligation doesn't mean that others can't be doing it for him or for her, as may one day become the case. Um, but I think what people have not realized through this business with uh, Atkinson and the whistleblower is the extent to which the, white, the current White House's theory of its total control over the executive branch is an outgrowth of what was sometimes called the unit, unitary executive theory that was the doctrine in the Cheney vice presidency, and that was pushed very hard by Vice President Cheney and his chief of staff, later counsel, David Addington. And it was, it's their view that the president has full control, he can do anything he wants with anyone who's, who's appointed by him, even with advice and consent of the Senate. And that is why, for example, um, that vice president, uh, to some degree, that White House and the current White House don't like IGs and don't like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act either, because that act also conditions the president's power to collect foreign intelligence in the United States. I don't think most people understand that the president has the power to collect foreign intelligence in the United States without a warrant, if it's just foreign intelligence. And so the FISA was passed in order to make sure the executive wasn't doing an end run um, around the warrant requirements, but it doesn't prevent the uh, president from collecting foreign intelligence. It just conditions it. The difficulty with these arguments is that if, if it's true, then Congress has no power to require timely information. I mean, getting GAO to audit something three years after the fact does nobody any good, uh, at least in, in terms of seeing what's going on in the government. And the, the Congress does under Article 1, Section 8, has a, the, necessary, the necessary proper clause, which includes finding out whether the laws really are being faithfully executed. I mean, the president has the power, has the duty to see that that's happening, but the, the Congress also has the, uh, the right and the power to find out whether he's doing it. The, and finally, we have well-developed law uh, not in FISA is one area where it is well-developed, but also in the president's ability to fire, that Congress can regulate the executive power as long as it doesn't unreasonably impinge on the president's ability to carry it out. So, well, that's a lot. Um, that's, a, that's a long answer. But uh, as I said, at least the, you know, you asked me three questions. So I packaged it all in, in one. Um, and <laughs> probably come to the, uh, 
to the independence issue, because that was one of your other questions. Shall we deal with that now? I think so. Let's do that. Okay. Well, there are two aspects of the independence. One is, what, what does the statute say? And under Section 3 of the Act, it, it says, there shall be at the head of each office of inspector general, who shall be appointed by the president, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, without regard to political affiliation and solely on the basis of integrity and demonstrated ability in law, accounting, and, and, and several other areas. But what does that mean? Well, the business of integrity and demonstrated ability has not been contentious, even when some people think that a president has appointed somebody uh, that, that an opposition might call a political hack. You can have a political hack who's got demonstrated ability in, in, in law or financial analysis or something like that. But what does it mean to say without regard to political affiliation? Well, as I think about it, here's what I think it can't mean. It can't mean that a Democratic president has to report a Republican, rather, or an independent. And it can't mean that a Republican president has to appoint an independent or a Democrat. But frankly, I think the notion without regard to political affiliation is in terms of positive law, meaningless, which may be why OLC didn't pick up on it in 1977. But it does inform our view of what the second prong of my answer is, which is what's the norm? And the norm has been that you don't remove an IG except for good cause. That's not what the statute says. But that's the, the sort of norm. And that's the norm expressed not only by Democrats now, but by Senator Grassley and a number of other Republicans. They said, they said wait a minute, we, we, we got these people in there for a reason. They helped the Congress do its job under the Constitution. That norm has now been destroyed. Another aspect of the norm is that IGs have served continuously from one administration to another, regardless of party. That norm has also been destroyed. And I think it is what the Congress meant, but didn't put into positive law when it said without regard to political affiliation. And that is the issue that the Congress is going to have to deal with, I think, after the next election. I'm sure they'll get right on that, Joel. And I say that without irony. I, as I indicated when I referred to Senator Grassley and other Republicans, this is not just an issue for Democrats right now, because it's, this is not a whose, axe, whose ox is being gored at the moment problem. This is a, a problem that I think once you get it out, out of the attempt of the particular issues like Ukraine and so on. This, this is an issue in which I think there's considerable bipartisan agreement on the Hill. I would certainly agree. And it certainly would enhance the efficacy of government, the rule of law, and everything else that we stand for. Nicole, you had a question? Yes. So if an IG is an employee appointed to serve in the executive branch, and he or she is fired, as so many have been in the past few weeks. Like six yes. of them. Six, six of them. Um, what authority does the president have to 
carry out those firings? What authority does Congress have to prevent that or to take consequential action for a firing if it appears to be purely partisan politics? I think that before we were talking about firing as uh, being called the removal authority that the president can exercise. That's what we call it in, in constitutional law. Um, as I, I, Nicole, I indicated uh, a little while ago that although the Congress had expectations uh, about uh, independence and so on, that is not what the statute really says. There's no good cause requirement uh, for removing an IG in the law. So the short answer to the, pre to the question is, the president can do it. And what happens if he removes them all? If that happens, then, and I think there's no statutory impediment to his doing so, or let's say maybe more realistically, he's already removed six, suppose he picks a couple other key ones and removes them. You know, we, we have uh, people talking about checks and balances all the time. We're going to bounce check here, if I can make a small pun. It, it, Congress doesn't insert, assert itself here. And that's that. That's just that. And he can do it. Um, the, the, the law on removal has, uh, it's, it's, it's less than perfectly clear. The issue first came up after Lincoln's assassination when Andrew Johnson of Tennessee assumed the presidency uh, automatically. And um, the Republicans who ran both houses of Congress, of course, different Republican party then, uh, didn't like Johnson, saw him as a fox in the hen house who would uh, undo um, a serious uh, effort to, um, at reconstruction. And so the, the Congress passed something called the Tenure of Office Act in 1867. And in fact, this was the basis, the failure, the Tenure of Office Act basically gave the, the Senate the right to determine who could and couldn't be fired in, among presidential appointees. Um, Johnson fired people anyway, and that was the basis of his impeachment. A lot of people don't, people know Johnson was impeached, but that's why. And his impeachment trial in the Senate failed by only one vote over this issue. That act was, repealed in 1887. And for, from 1887 until the 1920s, the issue just didn't come up. And in the, in the 1920s, a man named Myers, who'd been the post postmaster general of the United States, was removed. I don't know if it was in, in um, uh, Coolidge's administration or whether this case had been hanging around the courts and went back to Harding or not. But uh, during Coolidge's administration, goes up to the Supreme Court, and he's suing for the salary that he would have earned if he'd stayed in there for uh, uh, however long he'd been appointed for. And at that time, uh, young folks don't know this, but the post office was the post office department of the United States, and the postmaster general was a cabinet officer. It wasn't a, the, post, the post office wasn't USPS, that it was a, now it's a separate corporation. Anyway, so he, he sues, goes to the Supreme Court, he loses. He loses because the Supreme Court says that there is no conditioning of the president's removal power. And the court goes through this really long disquisition of, of the history and the, of the, in the constitutional debates where this issue came up. 
And there were some people who said the president's ability to remove someone we approve of ought to be, ought to be constrained. And they decided not to. So the court in Myers says, sorry, Mr. Myers, you, you, you can't collect. The issue came up again um, in the next decade in a case called Humphrey's Executor versus the United States. But in, this, in that case, it wasn't um, an executive official. Uh, it was Mr. Humphreys, a state, was suing for a salary that he would have collected if he had remained as an FTC commissioner for the full length of his tenure. Um, the tenure was statutorily created, but as people know, this was an independent agency created by Congress. And it is, as, as conservatives I rightly say, but it's a fourth branch of government that's not provided for in the Constitution. In any event, don't want to go into that one now, but the, the, he, is not a, he was not a, um, an executive official. So Humphrey collected. Humphrey's suit was allowed, it was, and he, he was um, allowed to, to collect the remainder of his salary because the Congress in that case said there has to be a good cause um, reason for his removal. Otherwise, he serves whatever the term was. I don't remember how many years. So, and the Congress can do that because the FTC commissioner is not an executive branch official. Okay, the, there, there have been other cases I'm not going to go into here because we're talking about IGs and not removal, but the matter came up again in 1988, went to the Supreme Court in Morrison versus Olson, which by seven to one upheld, because Justice Kennedy didn't participate in that, upheld the independent counsel statute, upheld its constitutionality. Again, invoking the idea that Congress, although it cannot involve itself in decisions to remove, can, can um, impose a good cause for removal requirement because it doesn't interfere with, in any unreasonable way with the president's uh, ability to perform his executive functions. That's a long one, but okay. Those are the three cases that really govern this area. And because of Morrison, it seems to me that if Congress wanted to uh, impose a good cause requirement for firing IGs, that it probably would be upheld. I say probably because, you know, these are hard things to predict and we've got a different court now, but um, there's good authority in Morrison versus Olson to support a good cause requirement for removal. Um, I suppose the Congress could also limit the use of acting IGs. You know, when, you, when the president puts an acting officer in, that acting person has less authority than a uh, Senate confirmed appointee and can only serve um, for a limited amount of time. We have a, gosh, what's the act? Uh, 19, again, I think from the 70s, um, 210 days or the time in which the permanent nominee is, is pending before the Senate. I don't think we're going to review that whole thing, but the Congress, I suppose, could impose different limits on the amount of time an acting uh, IG could serve just in relating to IGs. And I think what, what I would want them to think about, which nobody's mentioning yet, is suppose you said you can have an acting IG. It can serve for however many days you want, but only the acting IG has to be um, either the deputy as a, at present or another senior official, could be a presidential appointee or senior SES person from another 
OIG somewhere in the government. That would constrain the power of the president to put in political hacks. I think, I'm, I don't want to predict what the Congress is going to do, but I think these issues are going to get serious consideration in the new Congress. Uh, I think we'll be calling you a prescient, but uh, so this brings us to the factual question that may not be entirely clear to everyone. Uh, so specifically, how did the president's communications with the Ukrainian president become intelligence activities subject to oversight by the IG of ODNI? Um, even if it was partisan politics that was parading as diplomatic communications under Article 2, explain why it was something of concern to intelligence programs. Well, we're lawyers and a lot of our audience is lawyers, so I'm going to have to go again into that um, business of actually looking what the statute says. Uh, so I'm going to tell you what the statute says, and then I'll tell you what the allegations are, and, I, and then I think the answer to your question will become clear. It's a very good question because you had, after all, behavior that was taking place in the office of the president in the White House. How in the world does an IG, any IG, have anything to do with that? Okay, here's the answer. The IG of ODNI, that, that creation is now codified at Title 50, Section 3033. And subsection B3 sets forth the purposes of that office. And those purposes include, and I'll use the statutory language here, keeping the DNI fully and currently informed about problems and deficiencies relating to the administration of programs and activities within the responsibility and authority of the DNI. And I underscore the relating to language. It's been argued that what the statute should be understood to mean is that it restricts the IG's authority to matters occurring within the intelligence community. But the statute doesn't say that. The statute says the IGs can look at anything relating to the administration of programs and activities so long as the programs and activities are within the DNI's authorities, not that the conduct that relates to it's within it. And my reading, and, and this is, as I understand it, Mr. Atkinson's reading as well, is supported by the actual authorization language further down in the statute in subsection G3, where we read, and again, I'm going to use the actual language of the statute. The inspector general is authorized to receive and investigate complaints or information from any person concerning the existence of an activity within the authorities and responsibilities of the director of national intelligence constituting a violation of laws or rules and so on. Now, reading on again farther down in the statute in subsection K5A, if anybody really wants to follow these references, that subsection authorizes an employee of an intelligent community agency to report a, quote, urgent concern to the DNI's IG. And an urgent concern is defined to include, here again I'm going to quote, a serious or flagrant problem, abuse, violation of law or executive order, or deficiency relating to the administration or operation of an intelligence activity within the responsibility and authority of the DNI. Again, we see we're getting a repetition of the relating to language. This was not an accident. Now, 
one could argue, that's dumb. I don't like that at all. Nobody should be able to go into the White House. Uh, that's a policy argument. And there's, there are things to be said in favor of that argument, but that's just not what the statute says. Okay, let's compare what allegations were made to the statutory language. Now, what the whistleblower alleged was that information that was not and could not properly have been classified as top secret code word. Let me pause there. We have, by executive order, three levels of classified information in the United States, confidential, secret, top secret. Confidential generally means we want to keep it classified, but nobody's quite sure why, and we can't really call it secret, so we have confidential. That's the lowest level. Then we have secret and top secret, uh, depending on how what level of damage that's released might have to national security. But beyond top secret, we also have compartments in which that are so sensitive that even people who have top secret clearances can't get into them unless they're read into that compartment for need to know. That's what code word means in this case. So we're talking about a database in the White House that was where information that could not possibly have been TS code word was improperly placed in a database under the DNI's authority with a what should I say, a computer in that, that linked to that database was in the White House. But the database into which the information was put was under the DNI's authority. Moreover, number two, the IG alleged that it was done for reasons of political rather than intelligence sensitivity in order to cover something up. That would have been a violation of Executive Order 12356, which um, is what deals with classified information and it says in no case shall information be classified in order to conceal violations of law, inefficiency or administrative error or to prevent embarrassment to a person, organization or agency. Well, what the allegation was is that this is precisely why that information was placed into that database uh, under the DNI's authority. Now, the whistleblower also alleged several ways in which the president, members of his staff, and his personal attorney, that would be Mr. Giuliani, sought foreign assistance in order to influence the next U.S. presidential election. That was an allegation, which was found to be credible, not necessarily true, but credible. And that was the IG's business, because under a different executive order, number 13848, the DNI is principally responsible for assessing information indicating that a foreign government or any person acting as an agent or on behalf of a foreign government has acted with the intent or purpose of interfering in that election. Section two then goes on to create penalties for persons to have materially assisted, sponsored, or provided financial material or technological support for it, and so on, election interference in short. The whistleblower's complaint is reasonably read to allege a violation of that provision. In fact, I don't think it could be read any other way. And that becomes automatically a violation also of the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 31, Section 579.201. So we had behavior that affect that definitely related to, definitely concerned the way classified information was being handled, 
that it was being done for a nefarious and unlawful purpose, and not only um, to hide embarrassment or for political reasons, but also because it involved election interference. In sum, what the IG did was momentous. It was inevitably controversial. It was based on a statute that one might like or dislike, but on the clear language of the statute. And I think he had not only the legal authority to do it, but I think he had given that statute the duty to do it. Wow. Well, Joel, this has been a fascinating romp through history and the statutes. We're so glad that you're here to bring your knowledge and experience to our listeners. Can you uh, tell us what thoughts you have on reforms or changes that might uh, result from these firings? You kind of previewed it a little bit, but let's, uh, let's ask the question squarely. I'll, I'll spell them out again in, in short order. One is I, I think you constrain the use of acting IGs uh, and, and the act I'm remembering now, it's the Vacancy Act of 1998, not the 70s. That's in Title V, wants to chase that down. And limit not only the, the amount of time you could have an acting IG, but the limit the the kinds of persons who can who can serve in that position to the first assistant or deputy as president, or to a person holding a Senate confirmed position, or even possibly a, a high SES that's a senior executive service position within the IG community. That would again um, not prevent the the president from firing them all. But uh, at that point, you are in a, in a constitutional crisis and the Congress has to do its job. The second thing I, I, I would recommend the Congress seriously consider is the, a good cause for removal of an inspector general. But as I say, if ultimately a president, and I don't want to personalize this, if a president is intent on subverting that statutory order, if the Congress acquiesces then you can't solve the problem with more statutes um, and the Republic's in trouble. So people can draw their own conclusions. Wow, so this is, a, this is not a situation that is settled. Um, the landscape is gonna change probably a lot um, despite COVID uh, isolation and, and the public's attention directed to other things in this moment. Uh, I think in the next six months, we'll probably hear a lot more about this so I hope when that happens that you'll come back to us. Time will tell. All right. Well, I guess time will tell is uh, something I think my grandmother would rely on because uh, she thought it rude to have opinions. All right. Well, we're super glad that you came in today. We're glad you're around and we look forward to talking to you again as these things unfold. And thank you to our listeners to tuning into NSLT. We will continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice. Be sure to send us comments because we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Suggest topics that you would like us to cover and guests you would like to hear from. And as I said at the top, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search far beyond your laptop screen. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. 
I just want to remind our listeners that there was a lot of case law uh, regulations um, and so forth that were referenced today. Remember, when you're trying to learn and you're trying to get those independent research credits from your local bar, your uh, state bar, uh, take a look at the notes uh, to our podcast because you'll find that case law um, and all of those references right there where you can review them. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though it is difficult to be apart. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.